a psalm, Psalm 33. And it reads just one verse from it. It says this, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. And this psalm is it's a psalm of praise where we see God who rules with authority, but who, who, ultimately, who ultimately can be trusted. Now, I, I spend quite a bit, at least a few days of my week, looking into people's eyes. Now, I, I, it's not as weird as it sounds, okay? I'm an optician, so I am allowed. But I, I found that people do the most strangest of things. A number of years ago, an old lady came in for an eye test. She sat down on the chair, and as she sat down, she put her hand into her mouth and removed a set of false teeth, put them on the desk in front of me. Uh, I, I didn't quite know what to say to her, so I just ignored it, said nothing, carried on, did my eye test. At the end of the test, she says, can I put them back in again? I says, yes, please do. She grabbed them, stuck them back in her mouth. To this day, I have got no idea why she did that. I do really wish I'd asked her. One of my, one of my colleagues tells a story about a woman who wore contact lenses and she came in for this contact lens check and, and part of her cleaning process was to once a week to dissolve a protein tablet in some saline and then she would soak her contact lenses in it overnight. Now the lady came in about six months for her regular um, aftercare or check and there was just lots of buildup of protein on the contact lenses. So my colleague said to her, was she using her protein tablets? She says, yes, indeed I was. In fact, I was taking them once a week with a glass of milk. <laughs> now, I don't think it was doing her any harm, but it certainly wasn't helping her contact lenses, that's for sure. But eyes, eyes can can tell a lot. And there is so, there's so much in a look. So what does God, what does God see when he looks at us? See, in one sense, God is, is watching all of us. In, in Psalm 139, verse 7, we are told, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I, where shall I flee from your presence? And God knows all about us from what we do to what we say to, in fact, to our innermost thoughts. However, in Psalm 33, we read how God looks down from heaven on every man, every woman, every child. But the writer seems to be saying something more here because, because this look is different. This is a constant watchful look, a caring look, a look of delight. Now, when my daughter was a lot smaller, um, she loves me telling stories about her, by the way. Um, when she was a lot smaller, I would take her to the park and sometimes, sometimes I would just sit on the bench and just watch and I just wouldn't take my eyes off her and my eyes would follow her around, making sure that she was okay, ready to jump up at a moment's notice if she need, needed my help. And I looked, I looked because I loved because I cared, because I just enjoyed watching her having fun. But listen, should another man be watching my daughter that intently? That's just scary. And the eyes of a loving father on his child is a very different look, because that look is motivated by love. Now, there are two there are two characteristics mentioned here 
about a child of God in this, the verse I just read. Two things that, that God delights in as he looks on us with love. And when you first read it, they seem like complete opposites. Fear and hope. But remember, the central meaning of this verse is the unfailing love of God, our Heavenly Father. He is motivated by an untainted, by an unconditional love, a love that both originates in God and actually is God. So fear of God is shaped by an unfailing love and our hope by a steadfast, unchanging love of our Heavenly Father, a love that is actually not dependent on my response or even your response. It's, it makes no difference to God whether I fear Him or hope in Him, but it does make a difference to me. It benefits me. Therefore, it's important that we understand what it means to hope and to fear God. And the, the word the word fear is particularly difficult to understand, and we can, we can find many verses in the Bible that just tell us don't be afraid. In fact, the gospel records over and over again the words of Jesus saying, don't be afraid. And the only conclusion I can come to is that sometimes fear is for our benefit, and sometimes it can destroy us. Many years ago, my mom and dad were getting the roof fixed on their house. It was an old Victorian farmhouse. It had a ridiculously high roof, high ceilings. And, and so there was, there was scaffolding up the side of the house. And Raymond, a guy who worked for my dad on the farm, he climbed up the ladder to get onto the scaffolding. And, and all was going pretty well until he happened to look down. And then he froze. He was absolutely terrified of heights, something he perhaps should have thought about before he climbed the ladder for the first time. But he, he, clung, he clung on there for over an hour, unable to move. We couldn't get him up. We couldn't get him down. We eventually got a rope around his waist and managed to pull him across the scaffolding in through an upstairs window just to get him off, off the, the ladder. Now, you see, fear is a funny thing, isn't it? When you look over the edge of a cliff and you don't feel some sort of level of fear, well, you're either a fool or you've got a death wish. But if you get up every single morning and you, before breakfast, you've already got a list in your mind of all the things that are going to go wrong in the next 24 hours, you've got a problem with fear. And so many people live their lives absolutely paralyzed by fear. And fear can strangle your faith. It can make you ineffective. It can destroy your life. And it needs to be dealt with. And the Bible says that there is another way. In contrast to fear, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to bring peace. Listen to how Jesus describes it in John chapter 14, verse 27. says, I am leaving you with a gift peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift this world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. And the Spirit of God brings, brings peace into troubled hearts and minds. And we so often have it, have it all mixed up. We fear the world when we should be trusting and, and fearing God. And true Reverence and fear of God comes from knowing him. Begins by making sure that God is the most important person in your life, but actually there's more to it than that. There's a, 
There's a story in the Old Testament that took place on Mount Sinai where we see this incredible scene unfolding in Exodus chapter 19. And Moses, in obedience to God, comes down from Mount Sinai, or comes to Mount Sinai, and he receives the Ten Commandments. But the impact of that awful scene was both wonderful and, and terrifying. Listen to how the, the writer to the Hebrews describes it. This is Hebrews 12, verse 18. So you have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did on Mount Sinai. For you heard an awesome trumpet sound and a voice so terrible that you begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. And, and, and Mount, Mount Sinai builds one picture of what it means to fear God. A God whose terrifying holiness means that actually an encounter with him makes us stand back in awe and, and disreverence. And, and God's holiness is untouchable. His terrifying presence brings fear to everyone there so much so that the people were pleading that God would just stop speaking to them because because of their sin because of their idol worship they could not come near to God even Moses trembled in fear of God and in his, in Israel's history this was the summit of people's contact with God after this he could only be approached through blood sacrifices made by a high priest in the most holy place in the tabernacle. Yet God mercifully was giving us a picture of what it means to know him. Because as Moses symbolically stood between God and the people on Mount Sinai, he was simply pointing to a better way, to a real solution to a perfect mediator. That's why Hebrews continues in verse 22. He says, no, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless of thousands of angels in joyful gathering. You've come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You've come to the spirit of the righteous ones in heaven who have been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people to the sprinkling of blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. You see, there is another mountain. Mount Sinai was a mountain of, of terrifying holiness, but in contrast, there are mountain there's a mountain of healing holiness. And these verses do not contradict the picture of God's awesome holiness. God has not changed. He is still the living God, the judge of all men, who can only be approached through blood. But this godly fear that Johnny Bridge describes as reverential awe should drive us to our knees as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see and to reveal the devastating effect of our sin. But fear alone 
cannot bring healing. That's why I think Psalm 33 links fear with hope. Because fear without hope leads to the terror of Mount Sinai, which is a valid reaction to the presence of God. You see, if we stand before God by ourselves, we will be confronted with the terrible reality because it's impossible for us to make up for past failures and sins on our own. We can never live a life that is acceptable to God. Therefore, terror is an understandable response, but it's not the best response. So we, we discover something amazing, something thrilling, can't even say it, thrilling here that Moses prophetically pointed to that the Psalm writer has got a limited understanding of, but that the writer of Hebrews spells out for us. And I want you to understand this, that from the very beginning of the Old Testament, woven all the way through it, right into the New Testament, all of Scripture is pointing towards one person to a secure hope that is unshakable, because it is placed on unfailing love. His name is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, was born into this sinful world. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed, he loved, he feared his heavenly Father. But Jesus was born to die, and he was sentenced to death on false charges. He was cruelly beaten and tortured and then nailed to a cross. And finally, he's just left there to hang and to bleed and to die. But the blood, the blood that poured from his body and sprinkled onto this ground sealed a new promise, a new covenant one that was better than the old. First Peter chapter 2, 24 says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and yet live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. And Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin, to fear, to idolatry. He stands between God and us, the perfect mediator. Listen, the old covenant was based on just daily sacrifices that were repeated over and over again, but they have been superseded by Jesus Christ's one sacrifice because it was enough. The Old Testament priests, they had, they've been replaced by one priest, the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we find a reverence, a love, and, and a worship of God. And, and, and Jesus dealt with the terror of Mount Sinai. See, without Jesus, fear will destroy your intimacy with God. In Jesus, we come to another mountain, to the city of the living God. We place our hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We come through Jesus, the best way, in fact, the only way to God. And in him, we find understanding. What it, we, we find an understanding of what it means to be in awe of God. And that's what Nicole has, has done. And that is, that is what she is publicly showing today by being baptized. Because of her faith in Jesus, Nicole doesn't view God from a distance. Instead, she, she has come to trust in his unimaginable love. And Jesus offers that same hope over your life as well. Today, Jesus is here. 
and you can know him for yourself by putting your trust in him. It means acknowledging that you need him. It means repenting, which is simply to turn away from sin, from, from selfishness, allowing Jesus to change your life. You can do it by just a simple prayer of faith as you admit that you are a sinner, that you ask Jesus for your forgiveness. You believe that he died for you, that he rose again, that he is Lord of all. And as you put your trust in him, listen, he can be Lord of your life as well. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for what your Bible teaches us, what your word teaches us. Lord, may we apply it to our hearts. Holy Spirit, just come and just bring together some of my perhaps jumbled words. And Lord, may we be able to both understand, but also apply them to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.